0: To some of you, it might seem pretty random for us to be jumping into Genesis at chapter 37, but there might be one or two of you who remember that a few years ago, we looked very closely for an entire fall at the life of Abraham, which covers Genesis chapter 12 through the middle part of chapter 25. And then a year later, we looked at the lives of Abraham's son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob. And their lives cover the middle of chapter 25 up into uh, chapter 36 and even the first verse of chapter 37. So here we are. It's as if we've put down an epic novel and we've picked it up again. And we're we're picking up where we left off in the story of Genesis. And actually chapters 37 through 50 make up the next natural section in the Genesis story. And they're actually also the climactic section of the book of Genesis that will bring it to its epic conclusion. Um, These chapters, as I said earlier, function, they focus mainly on Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. In fact, a lot of us probably, if we've looked at these chapters before, if we've studied them ourselves or in a group, we might have heard them described as just a, a study on Joseph's life. And that's one way to look at them. But there are more characters here than just Joseph, right? Even in the chapter we just read. I hope we'll start to see today that this story is about Joseph's entire broken family, not just him. Even though Joseph is a main character, the story is really about God's faithfulness to this entire family, God's transformation of a family from a place of internal havoc and near ruin, as we just heard about. To a place of renewed harmony and fruitfulness. One thing I really encourage you to do as we're walking through this series, and we'll walk up through this series up into Advent is to sit down for as long as it takes and read in one sitting Genesis chapter 37 through 50, to see the transformation that God brings about all in one sweep of of reading it. It's incredible to read this story all at once and to see what God does. Before we wade into all the conflict that we just listened to, we need to recap why this family is so important and what makes their conflict so potentially catastrophic? Re- remember that the book of Genesis is describing the beginnings of our world. From its creation to the early years of humanity. And in the beginning, uh, the Bible paints this scene of harmony between God, people, and the natural world. And you've probably heard before, we say this often, that the Jews describe this as shalom. It's this overall sense of well-being. It was funny. Heidi was reading a book to our boys last night after dinner, and it was describing peace in all the different languages. But they didn't say shalom. And Heidi grew up is Jewish, and uh, she's like, "We're, we're all we're shalom. Where did it?" Go? And then at the very back of the book, it says shalom. Finally. <laughs> you know, this is one of my favorite seasons of the year, uh, when the weather is turning like this. The leaves are just beginning to change. And I feel like I get a sense of what Shalom, just a taste of what it will be like when I walk outside in these mornings that are crisp and cool. And everybody seems to be a little more at ease. People are walking their animals. They're just more chatty, you know, saying hello. The weather's great. Everybody gets along, right? But then there's a hurricane that is destroying part of our country (laughs) as well. And so it doesn't take long to remember that everything is not all well in the world. But Genesis says that everything really was well. Until one day, rebellion broke out and it instigated chaos. Humans were deceived. We were deceived. Someone told us that we could be like God himself, that we can find our own way in the world. And we believed it. We did. And once this happened, one of the first consequences we see is a sibling rivalry that ends in murder. Lie begets lie. Rebellion begets rebellion. And Cain kills Abel. As we listen to the story of Joseph, as we listen to the conversation between his brothers suggesting, let's kill him, let's get him out of the way and see what happens to his dream then, we're supposed to remember this primal incident. We're supposed to see this family's conflict as rooted in the very first rebellion against God. This is what happens. We are all caught up in this. Sometimes we become so angry and so cold that we ourselves want to get rid of someone. But we're also to see the difference between our story and that story. Because in the story of Joseph's family, God saves the brothers from themselves. In his merciful providence, he orchestrates a divine restoration. Something new is happening. So the story of Joseph is part of this much larger story of Genesis and the world we live in. God making the world in goodness, but humans turning against God in pride. But of God not abandoning his creation. Not abandoning us. Instead, he commits himself to fully restore us. So even this ridiculously broken family. I mean, who of us can't read about this family and feel a little bit better about ourselves, right? But they too are a family to whom God is committed. A family in whom God is at work, and a family through whom God will, against all the odds, bless the world. Remember also that Joseph and his brothers have inherited God's promises through their great-grandfather, Abraham. During this time when the world was raging in its own chaos, God called Abram and made him impossible promises. They were impossible. That he would make him an old childless man into an entire nation. That he would bless him and protect him so that he and his family would become a blessing to the entire world. And they would lead others back to the ways of God. It is crucial that we understand what the promises God makes to Abraham as a hinge on which the entire Bible turns. Joseph belongs to this family, and his brothers belong to this family. So despite all that we read about in Genesis 37, God has made promises to them, and he will keep them. And remember that Christians now are children of Abraham. We're proof that Abraham's family has become a blessing to the world. And we've inherited these promises as well. So even if you read about this family and you say, well, they're not quite as messed up as my family, you've still got the promises. But things certainly don't look good in the chapter we just read, do they? Can we count the problems? Don't you like talking about other people's issues just a little bit? Come on. We joked, Katie, we joked in our house this week that we wish judging people was a spiritual gift. That sounds awful. I won't tell you which one of us said it. Look, the best thing about it here is it's not gossip because it's one of the biblical families. So, like, you, you can feel good on all accounts. We can talk about them, and it is okay. The first thing we need to see this morning is that this Horrible family does belong to God. And God isn't afraid of sinners, nor is he afraid of their sin. He's not. That's good for us. But we need also to look at all their conflict in detail to let it pile up, to let it overwhelm us in a way. You see, what the narrator is getting us to do is see how awful a situation they're in and then forcing us to ask, can God make this into a family of peace? Is it possible that God can use this family to bless the world? Really? So we need to look closely at all their conflict and then... We will ask the question, what's God going to do? So in the ancient world, the oldest son had the right to the majority of the inheritance, right? And they were looked to for leadership by the rest of the family. But the problem is that Reuben is the oldest son in this family. And he has already tried to lay claim as leader while Jacob, his father, is still alive by sleeping with his father's concubine. Can we all agree this is not a good idea? This isn't the way to do it. And from that point on, look, Reuben is incapable of leading his family. This is why we see this kind of half-hearted attempt at saving Joseph from Reuben. And the family doesn't really listen to him. The next brothers in line... Two candidates, Simeon and Levi. Now, the problem with Simeon and Levi is that two years before this, they went on a violent killing spree after their sister was raped, and they risked the safety of the whole family. They put the whole family at risk of destruction. So with no self-restraint, no political savvy, Jacob cannot trust them to lead the family. He can't. Judah would be the next brother in line. We'll get to Judah later. But the chapter opens with Jacob's obvious choice, Joseph. Uh, Jacob gives him this designer robe that wouldn't only signify that Joseph is the favorite. It would suggest that Jacob has already picked him as his successor, that basically Jacob has turned over the family business to Joseph while he's only 17. And Joseph is too young to handle this. I I love the way John articulated his dreams. It was arrogant. Jacob's doting on Joseph has shaped him into a brat. He's a tattletale, going and telling on his other brothers. And the robe, it only makes the brothers hate him. Uh, Joseph develops a terrible case of what one of my friends calls young man's disease. You're so arrogant and prideful that you're oblivious to others and you're blind to your own weaknesses. I have another friend who mentors a lot of young guys and he tells them um, that their brain hasn't developed yet for them to know how dumb they are. (laughs) It's really gentle. He gets lots of new candidates, right? Joseph's dreams are not completely wrong. He gets two of them. One, uh, you could question that. But two, this is coming from somewhere. But they're not completely wrong, just like youthful ambitions aren't wrong. But it was dumb for him to tell these dreams to people who already hate him. So this family God has chosen to bless, the family that God has chosen to use to bless others, is at war within itself. And then there's Jacob. He's evidently completely oblivious to the hostility that he's helped create. And so he sends Joseph on a suicide mission to check on his brothers. Listen carefully. He sends Joseph to Shechem. Now, the last time we heard about Shechem was when Simeon and Levi went on their rampage and killed all the men of that city. Shechem has developed a notorious reputation for violence. And Joseph answers Jacob in a way that should send chills down our spines. It's the same way that Isaac answered his father Abraham when Abraham called on Isaac to take him and sacrifice him. Abraham has been told by God to sacrifice Isaac. And so Abraham calls on Isaac and Isaac says, here am I, a willing child, willing to be sacrificed by the father. Jacob calls on Joseph to go to this place of violence to the brothers who hate him and Joseph responds with, Here am I. Jacob is sacrificing his beloved son and he doesn't even know it. If Joseph does come out alive, it will only be because of God's providential mercy on this family. And worse yet, Jacob grew up in a family with a mom and dad who had picked favorites. You'd think Jacob would have considered the damage that this can cause and would have tried to keep the peace between his children. But he doesn't. He instigates this. Now we're being a little hard on them, huh? All of this would be super depressing if this were where the story ends. But we know it's not. We know it's not. With all of this chaos in our first foray into this family, the question that we're being led to ask is, can God make this into a family of peace and blessing? Can he? They're on the precipice of their own undoing. Can God do something about this? How will he do it? There are two specific ways, even in this first chapter, that we're beginning to see God work in the background. Ways God will continue to work as this story moves forward. So quickly, I want to show you two ways. The first way is that God sends Joseph down into a pit. He sends Joseph down into a pit. Now, I know the brothers do it. Hear me out. Three times in the early life of Joseph, we read about him going down into a type of pit. Three times. First, it's into this pit his brothers throw him in, a pit without water where he's doomed to die. But he's lifted out of that pit. The brothers, while eating their meal, right after they have put him in there to die, somehow develop some reason to save him, and they th- sell him off. He's lifted out of that pit, and he's sent down into Egypt. Egypt was the nation equivalent of a pit. A foreign people a for- with foreign gods and foreign ways. It was dangerous. Everyone where I grew up thought of in North Louisiana thought of New Orleans as a pit. So when Katie and I were living there, her car is broken into one time. My family asked, when are you going to get out of that pit? With some other adjectives. (laughs) Egypt was a pit. But in Egypt, Joseph is lifted up again. He's elevated as this high ranking servant. And then... Unjustly accused of trying to sleep with his boss's wife, he's sent into another literal pit, and he becomes an innocent prisoner in an underground prison. Joseph will spend years in this pit, and finally he'll be lifted out again, and he'll never return to a pit. Each time Joseph goes down into one of these pits and is lifted up, it's described in a way that sounds like death on the one side and resurrection on the other. He goes down into a pit without water, doomed to die, but then he's lifted up. In Egypt, he's lifted up as a servant in charge of everything that his master has. And then he's lifted up as Pharaoh's highest official. You see, even though these years of Joseph's life are tragic and painful, and they are absolutely that, as we watch Joseph in these years, we're going to see him grow, become a new man, resurrected. We'll watch him become a leader. We will watch his dreams come true, but his dreams will look different than he imagined. Okay. What would it mean for Joseph's dreams to come true immediately while he's 17? The way he tells these dreams, it would look like domination. Everyone bows to Joseph and Joseph bows to no man. This younger brother, by nature, unworthy to be superior to his older brothers, by sheer force of his will, he is exalted over them and they must bow. This isn't the type of leader that God looks for. Nor is it even the type of servants that God desires. Servants who are forced into submission against their wishes. Beat into submission. You see, the young Joseph is in love with the dream of authority. But he doesn't know what it really means. He doesn't know what leadership really costs. He has to go down into a pit to learn that. And by the time that his dreams really come true, and all his brothers do bow down to him, how does Joseph respond? Don't bow down to me. He no longer even wants his brothers to bow to him in this way. He assures them of his loyalty to them and his forgiveness of his service to them. All of a sudden, he's eager to serve them, not to dominate them. So sure, his brothers throw him into the pit and have him sent into Egypt. And he is thrown into prison unjustly. But through the pit, God forces Joseph's hand. Joseph would have been a horrific leader at age 17. But God will make him last so that he can then make him first. Joseph's story becomes the pattern in which God works in the world for all time. The way in which God works through Jesus and the way that he now works through us, his church, his bride. The last will be first. What do we do with this? First, I think we simply remain open to what God might do in our lives through our own pits. All of us have been in a pit of despair before. All of us will go into more pits of despair. Some of us might be in them now. You don't have to force yourself to figure things out while you're in it. And don't force it on other people to figure it out while they're in it. I seriously doubt that while Joseph was in that first pit, that he was quoting to himself, God works out all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I doubt it would have done any good for one of us to stand over the pit and shout it down to him. Remember, Joseph, it's not that that isn't true. It's not that we shouldn't hang on with all we've got to believe that. But this type of growth and realization, it often happens slowly. Through prayer, through conversation with friends who know us very well, and we can trust to ask them, do you see anything in me that would create this type of situation that God might want to Work in me through this. We need to remain open. Don't underestimate what God might do in you through a dry pit. And. Trust him. Trust him. That he can work in you through your sufferings. That they're not useless. They're not in vain. So remain open. And second. Remember that leading people in any form, whether it's your vocation, your home, or it's our church, that it first means service. It first means service. Just because a spouse, our children, our, our employees are afraid of us does not mean that we're leading them. It does not. In the end, we will not benefit from people's fear. Well, real leadership is service that's performed in love. So God will work in this family by first sending Joseph down into a pit and making him last so that he can learn how to be first. A second way that God works in this family, by punishing Jacob and Joseph's brothers. God will punish Jacob and Joseph's brothers. Just because we can later see God's hand, his providence at work, in what happens to Joseph, it doesn't mean that everything that his brothers did was okay. It's all of a sudden legitimized. Brothers, it was really a good idea. I needed to go down into that pit. That's not it. The brothers will reap what they've sown, as we'll start to see next week with this Jerry Springer-esque story of Judah unknowingly impregnating his daughter-in-law. He plays the trick here. The trick is played on him next week. Don't miss next week's episode, (laughs) right? The brothers will carry their guilt into the very end of the story until Joseph releases them through forgiveness. And by the end of this story, Joseph's brothers will have to accept the realities of his dreams. Joseph's dreams come true in a way different than he expects. But his brothers have to accept those realities. That means they have to stop fighting and they have to defer to Joseph. Part of life is learning to lead. And part of life is also learning to follow. That both of these are forms of service to others. And the posture rarely changes. But it isn't just the brothers who are at fault in this situation, is it? Remember that Jacob the father has been a trickster much of his life. He tricked his own brother out of his inheritance using a goat. How did Jacob's own sons trick him here? A goat. They use a goat to make him think his beloved son is dead. Jacob gets beat at his own game. Punishment, discipline, especially from God, is a hard topic for a lot of us. Our world has made it so difficult for us to talk about the times when God legitimately punishes people. When he legitimately punishes us. For some of us, this is understandably complicated. This has been talked about in ways that shame us and don't lead us into more freedom. I'm sorry for that. But part of this story is about reaping what we sow. Of course, God also bestows lots of mercy on Jacob, but he doesn't forego punishing Jacob's misdeeds. And in reality, this discipline is a mercy to him. Because even into his old age, God is still reworking Jacob, making him into a man and a father who can bless other people. So by the end of the story, when Jacob Sits down to really bless his sons, he's able to see them clearly. There are no more tricks, and he's able to bless them appropriately. So, in a world that's becoming more and more afraid of punishment and of discipline, we need to be a people who can hold the line wisely and lovingly. God disciplines those whom he loves. He does. He does it to lead us toward a more full repentance, a a life that better reflects how he's made us and that truly blesses other people. Katie and I are trying to figure out what it means to discipline at this stage in life. And I guess that means we'll be doing it for the next 18 to 20 years or however long. It's so humbling, isn't it? Uh, I find that as I'm praying about how to discipline, I'm reflecting on how it is that God ends up disciplining us. So there are these moments where it seems to work, where I seem to be in a good place. and. Uh, The child seems to be in a good place where what I really want for him is just to have a soft heart to God and authority. I'm not necessarily angry as I'm disciplining that I'm not saying this is all the time. I'm saying there are these times and where the child seems to really be upset and regretful about what they've done. And so after the act of discipline, it's as if immediately they just fall on us. And hug us. And I find it startling in a way. It's so childlike, isn't it? So trusting. The one who's just disciplined me, I'm willing to fall on and realize I'm at their mercy. And they love me. It's become a picture to me for what it is like for God to discipline us because I think as we get older, we tend to try to keep a protective distance from those people who could discipline us or shame us in some way. Parents, bosses, spouses, pastors, even God himself. We don't trust them as much. But children, they know that they're loved, and so they fall into our arms. This is who we need to be as God disciplines us. We don't need to act as if he's angry at us. When we feel guilt, we shouldn't hide in shame. We should lean in and let our father do his best with us because he really does love us. That's why he disciplines us. So God will make this family into a family of blessing. He's going to do it by sending Joseph into a pit. And he will do it by punishing his father and his brothers for their own sin. And these two works in their lives, in this family's life, will restore them slowly. but surely. It's interesting to me that no one escapes this story without guilt, right? Joseph, he's guilty. His brothers, guilty. Jacob, guilty. But neither do they get out without mercy. And it's the same with all of us. And it becomes visible as we will open ourselves to the one who does work all things for our good. We all have this rebellion living in us. But God in his mercy is committed to us. He works often quietly, in the most unexpected places, shaping us into people who can bless others as we learn to become servants. So the story closes on a somber but hopeful note. Jacob mourns. He refuses to be comforted. But the son he mourns for is still alive. Joseph is pulled out of one pit and taken down into another to the country of Egypt, but he's sold to this captain of Pharaoh's guard. Is it possible that Joseph's dreams weren't just his own, that they could still come true in another way? Could this scheming and murderous family be reconciled? We're left to hope that it's still possible. Do you have this kind of hope for yourself? For your own family, that God and his gracious providence is working, and he will make you, your family, our church, into a family of blessing for the life of the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.